What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hey, friends, thanks for joining our podcast. I want to tell you about something really new and exciting called Patreon.com slash BP Show. It's a great way to get uh, exclusive interviews with newsmakers, voicemails, personalized videos, political commentary, and early access to a special podcast called The Making of Bernie Sanders. Go to Patreon.com slash BP Show. Patreon.com slash BP Show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Yep, Donald Trump says he's finally found the answer to how to govern. Shut the government down. Yet now he's calling for a government shutdown. Oh, man, every day gets worse and worse. On a Wednesday, May 3rd, hello, everybody. Great to see you. How about it? It is the Bill Press Show. Welcome to the program. Good to see you. As we start off for the next two hours to bring you up to date on all the news of the day, especially here from our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., what's happening on Capitol Hill, what's happening down at the White House. It was a raucous day at the White House yesterday uh, and not much accomplished on Capitol Hill, but we'll bring you up to date on all of it and look forward to hearing from you about it, what it all means to you here on the Bill Press Show. We start out in Washington, but end up alongside of you, wherever you happen to be, whether you're listening or watching today. Thank you for joining us and uh, get ready to sound off and let us know your comments on the news of the day uh, on Twitter at BP Show. Our guest today, Matt Gertz, will be here from Media Matters for America to talk about uh, all the big flap at Fox News, among other things and maybe to call out the New York Times. Congressman David Cicilline from Rhode Island uh, introducing the Equality Act uh, yet again yesterday in Congress. He'll tell us all about it. And a former Secretary of the U.S. Navy, former Governor of Mississippi, Honorable Ray Mabus, will be here in studio as well. Great lineup. We'll get right to it. But first... This is the Full Court Press. Just a couple of other stories making news. Okay, so I hate to go back and refight this fight, but you remember the inauguration, right? And Donald Do Trump the had biggest. a... Fr- period. Donald Trump had a fraction of the crowd that Barack Obama had for his inauguration. Well, CBS News actually put out a uh, FOIA request, Freedom of Information request, to find out what happened to the National Park Service's because after the inauguration, you remember the, the National Park Service tweeted out a side-by-side comparison of Obama yeah, yeah. and Trump's. Right. Soon after, the tweet was deleted, and then the Twitter feeds for both the National Park Service and the U.S. Interior Department were briefly shut down. So CBS News put out a FOIA request to find out 
who exactly was behind getting that stuff down. It turns out Donald Trump himself personally got involved in this to find out he who called. it was. He called and he was involved in the emails to try and find out. The head of the Park Service, right? Yeah, John, just, his name now, but anyhow, go ahead. Right. Uh, Sorry. So, uh, the chief information security officer is a yeah. man by the name of Sean Cavanaugh. Mm-hmm. Tim Cash is the chief of digital strategy. They they were all sort of involved in this whole thing where Trump was trying to personally weed out and find out who it was that tweeted this photo. Now, that's how he starts his presidency. This is like right after he was inaugurated. This is what he was preoccupied with, finding out who wrote the tweet that he did not like. Period. Yeah. Period. Right, and who put the white those white that white stuff on the mall for the first time ever? Which is not true. It had been there right. before. We right. just didn't see it because it was covered with people before. <laughs> so that was that was where his priorities were in the in the first couple of days. Uh, yesterday, somebody tweeted out a penis, video penis size for people who. You oh know, boy. are insecure. Here we go. That's a big deal. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Uh, yesterday, somebody tweeted a video of uh, Donald Trump and Melania Trump. Melania looking at Trump very lovingly, and then the second that he turns away, her face turns to a frown. It's a video that's been around for a little while. So someone tweeted this out and said, seems the only wall Donald Trump built is the one between him and his wife, and tagged uh, Flotus in it. Well, she liked the tweet. Melania Trump <laughs> liked the tweet. It didn't last very long. Someone got a screen grab of it and she has unliked it since then but <laughs> ball don't lie there is a photo where she had liked it huffington post picked up on the story so she doesn't use twitter i don't think so i think you're probably right well we'll see if she moves to washington on your radio on tv and online This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, how about it? Wednesday, May 3rd. Hello, everybody. And welcome. Welcome to the Bill Press Show. Coming to you live from Washington, D.C., our studio on Capitol Hill. That's our nation's capital, where Republicans um, have egg all over their face again today. Yet again, it looks like for the third time. They're going to uh, fail to pass any kind of a health care, uh, Obamacare repeal bill out of the House, although they are trying hard. Uh, and where down at the White House, they are trying to turn a defeat on the spending bill into a big win for the White House. And where Donald Trump continues to look around the globe for mass murderers, thugs, criminals, dictators repressive rulers so he can invite them all to the White House. Maybe he should just have a, uh, uh, you know, a war crimes or world criminals summit at the White House. Start something new. He is actually, without declaring it that, he has started something new. At any rate, we want to bring you up to date on all of that today. Yes, indeed, the big a continuing battle over uh, health care. Um, the Donald Trump's call for a government shutdown. The bragging about the spending bill. What is really the truth about it? Uh, and Hillary Clinton yesterday s- saying that, uh, explaining 
how she lost the election. Um, we probably ought to start with the Red Sox, don't you think? Oh. Just because, oh. just because uh, Jamie, oh. wa- Jamie, I wasn't going to start there, but Jamie wanted us to to start there uh, with the. Uh, I should Red just Sox. not put the story in the in the email. Last I night. want to be very clear. I did not bring this up. Even though I love talking about if it. If you want to talk about how the Celtics won an amazing basketball game last night, we can certainly discuss well, yeah, that. Yeah, because they but... were afraid their fans were going to call them the N-word if they lost. Uh, of course oh, they won. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, Peter, you're the sports department. I'm not the sports department. Oh, but there boy. has been there has been some um, bad publicity for the Red Sox, allegedly. Well, so here's the and deal. they tried to make up for it yesterday. Here's so what happened. happened. So. Just, at- just the facts is all just we the want. Facts, just, just the facts. Just the facts. So, right. so Adam, Adam Jones is a, a baseball player uh, uh, for the, the Baltimore Orioles. And the Orioles and the Red Sox do not get along. That's fair to say, right, Jamie? Well, it's it's heightened in recent weeks because a couple incidents happened where an Orioles player slid into a Red Sox player at second base, hurt him, and then a Red Sox pitcher threw at an Orioles but they player have history. head. So, yeah. Yeah. They have history. So they're in the same division. They don't like each other. So, Adam Jones is a player for uh, the Orioles, and he said after a game— uh, African-American player. African-American player. Outfielder. He said after a game that he, uh, Boston sports fans, Spread. had thrown peanuts at him and called him the N-word. And it wasn't just an isolated incident. Right. It had yes. happened several times. And so he went public with it and said, you know, this is what happens when you play in Boston. He's not the first— athlete to have this happen there have been plenty of athletes who've come out over the years and said that like playing in boston as a black player opposing black player is very 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 hard to do in fact and boston sports fans have kind of a reputation they have a reputation for being they keep like so like look uh they keep those racial epithets in their back pocket for opposing players and even boston players acknowledged that like they have a bit of a problem. Like the, the the Celtics were sort of uh, going after a white basketball player uh, at one point, Gordon Hayward, and, and one of the Boston Celtics players said, like, you know, this this feels a little gross that yeah. we're spending all this time sort of obsessing over this white basketball player. So there, there's there's a racial history to Boston sports. That's that's fair, right, Jamie? Yes. I'm, I just want to I, seriously. I don't. I just want to make just sure I'm not speaking out of, facts, right. out of turn here because sure. I don't. I don't keep up with a lot of Boston. Well, here, here's Adam Jones yesterday. I'm not going to say nitpick and just say you know here's here's bad, but um, here's there's there's a there's a there's a long history of, of these kind of incidents in Boston, and you know I've spoke with various players of different eras, and <laughs> a lot of the things that they've told me I can't say. Hmm. All right. Yeah, so like yesterday, Adam Jones came back up to bat. Uh, the Orioles were still playing the the Red Sox, and so the crowd uh, after gave word him, of this got after around, word had gotten around. Yeah, the crowd, the crowd gave, gave him, him a, a rousing ovation when he came to the plate, which right. is which is rare for Adam Jones. There we go. Yeah, Boston's no longer racist. All right. Okay. Right. Boston redeemed itself. Okay. No, I mean, this right. was this was. Diff- I mean, this is always difficult for me. I mean, obviously, last last year was the the Brady Trump, you know, Patriot stuff, and yeah, I know that the Boston has a sketchy record when it comes to to racism, and now perhaps with politics as well. So, uh, you know, I'm I'm glad they gave him a standing ovation, but uh, you know, all Boston fans need to acknowledge that this is continues to be a problem. No matter what happens, we cannot escape this racist city, racist sports town Which is so 
uh, like contradictory to what the reputation that Boston has in terms of our history. You know, sure. Well, uh, I think that I, I, and, I, I, and Massachusetts has the liberal being a very liberal city state. on a hill. I right? think there's an important uh, point to be yeah. made here, right? Not to just spend a lot of time <laughs> dumping on Boston, um, but you know, like having grown up in the South and having a lot of New Englanders and West oh, Coasters yes. and everybody sort of dump on the South as being the the, the the capital of racism here in America. And there's an argument to be made that. There's a lot more institutional racism in the South, which keeps minorities yeah. down, and that's a very, very fair point to make. But like, we are a racist country. We like, we are absolutely yeah. a racist country. And whether it is hurling the N word at an opposing player, or it, or or bigger issues, like we got a lot of work to do. Uh, yes. How and about some of these team names too? Just yeah. fair, there absolutely fair. Uh, and we might add to that the fact that Attorney General Jeff Sessions yesterday, the very first police abuse case where white police officers killing a black man down at Baton Rouge, yeah. the very Long first Sterling. opportunity uh, that the uh, just this new administration's Justice Department had to step in uh, on a clear case of, uh, of um, uh, racism in the police department, they said, no, we're not going to uh, press charges in that case. Yeah. So. Um, another sign of what you're saying. Every once in a while, it pops up, uh, and uh, we're reminded about how much progress we have to make. Moving right along. Somebody else popped up yesterday. Popped back up. Yes, she is back four months, uh, maybe five months later, uh, after licking her wounds. Hillary Clinton yesterday at a women's conference in New York where she was interviewed by Christiane Amanpour from... Uh, uh, CNN. Uh, she looked tan and rested and ready to go. Um, she said a couple of things that we could certainly, uh, we were glad to hear her say. Uh, Jamie, if we can, where she said, for example, um, on North Korea, I want to save the uh, first one till last. On North Korea, uh, you know, you need a little bit more than we've heard from Donald Trump. Negotiations are critical, but they have to be part of a broader strategy, not just thrown out on a tweet some morning that, hey, let's get together and, you know, see if we can't get along. Yeah. And uh, what about Donald Trump's obsessing, uh, which he always does, he did again yesterday in the Rose Garden, about the election? He should worry less about the election and my winning the popular vote than doing some <laughs> other things that would be important for the country. Uh, it would be good if he moved on from bragging about how many electoral votes that he won uh, forgetting, of course, he had also the uh, uh, the, uh, the popular vote by a lot, by a lot, three million. Um, and um, so then, what about her role now? What is she? Is she going to like stay on the sidelines and just be Grandma Hillary? Oh, I'm I'm now back to being an activist citizen and uh, part of the resistance. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> is that what we really want? Do we? I mean, God love her, right? Uh, but you know, I don't think Democrats are saying, "Hillary, we need you. We need you to lead us again. We're leader. You know, we need you. We need you out there in front, uh, reforming the, reshaping the Democratic Party." I don't hear that clamor from uh, from Democrats. Uh, and there were some Democrats on the Hill yesterday who said. Basically, thanks, but no thanks. And then the one place where I think uh, Hillary 
just it showed yet that she has yet not come to grips with exactly what happened last year when she explained her explanation of why she did not win. I was on the way to winning until the combination of Jim Comey's letter on October 28th and Russian WikiLeaks raised doubts in the minds of people who were inclined to vote for me but got scared off. In other words, uh, it had nothing to do with her campaign. It all had to do with external forces. Uh, about 10 days ago, uh, we had in studio here John Allen and Amy Parnes, who just published their book, Shattered, uh, all about the Clinton campaign. And what she is saying is the exact opposite of what they said. And having lived through that campaign and having read Shattered, I have to tell you, I think their version of the truth is closer, to, is, is certainly more accurate than her version of the truth. We've been over this. Don't want to spend too much time on it. You all consider, you all think I'm a Hillary basher. I am not. I'm just trying to be objective about why we lost an election, why she lost an election, and we lost an election we never should have lost. There were a lot of factors. Yes, Comey, the Comey uh, announcement at the very, uh, toward the end of the campaign that he was reopening her investigation and then shutting it down again two days later, certainly had an impact. Yes, uh, the WikiLeaks, John Podesta's emails, certainly had an impact. Yes, the efforts by the Russian government to undermine the election um, certainly had an impact as well. But, but, right, this was a campaign, essentially a campaign with a weak candidate, weak in 2008, weak in 2016, it was a campaign, as John Allen and Amy Parnes point out, that did not have a message, a clear message from the very, very beginning as to why Hillary Clinton should be the next president of the United States. Uh, and it was a campaign that made some serious mistakes in terms of where they focused, that they believed that by getting women and minorities, the old, if you will, Obama um, voting bloc, that that would be enough to win the election. Uh, and they forgot about the blue-collar, working-class Americans, Democrats, who were always the backbone of the Democratic Party, who supported her in 2008, uh, and then it ended up a lot of them going to Donald Trump because they didn't feel that Hillary was concerned about their issues at all, and she never reached out to that constituency at all, uh, reflected in her losing Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, and not even campaigning in Wisconsin. And then finally, James Comey's letter would, letter would not have existed if Hillary Clinton had not put a, a private email server in her house in the first place. So I think what's lacking in her analysis of the election is um, any internal problems or any way that she herself might have been responsible for her own uh, defeat. And until that happens, um, she's going to be a wounded messenger. You know, uh, it just, look, the facts are there. Read the book, Shattered. I think uh, we can we can move on from Hillary Clinton, and Hillary Clinton can move on from us. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, that's I all I really feel like. I, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, I agree. I, I know I, that she gave an interview, and I know that, that she was asked about 2016, so it's not like she was out there trying to continue to say, poor me, poor me. I mean, she was asked about it. But like, she doesn't understand why she lost, and that's 
that's fine. A lot of a lot of candidates and politicians are out of touch. She's one of them. Uh, we can move on now. She needs. She can go and enjoy retirement, enjoy her grandchildren, uh, and that's. I'm fine with that. Yeah, that's right. And I will respect her and love her forever. Sure. But I'm not going to buy her version of what happened uh, in the 2016 campaign. Meanwhile, it was wild at the White House yesterday. Uh, on several fronts. Well, first, let's start before we get down to that end of Pennsylvania. But this end of Pennsylvania, are you ready for this? They still can't get together, Republicans, on repealing Obamacare. They tried, you know, they failed miserably the first time. They crashed and burned the first time. Didn't come. Remember, they it, it they were close. They could have lost if they'd had a vote. Some Republicans told us by 75 votes, that's how far they were. <laughs> Crashed and burned. It was a total humiliation for Paul Ryan and for Donald Trump. And Donald Trump said, now, nah, let's move on. Yeah, and we lost that one. Okay, so what? Let's go on to tax reform. And then he changed his mind. He said, no, we're going to try again. And we're going to do it. Why? Because I promised I would do it in 100 days. So last week, they all geared up. Donald Trump pushing them. And Paul Ryan says for the second time, I'm going to deliver all oh, this time. Give me a second chance. I'm going to round up my vote. And let's remember again, we're talking only talking Republicans. They control the House. They control the Senate. Democrats have nothing to do with this. The problem was not Democrats. It was just all Paul Ryan had to do was to get line up his Republican caucus. This is last week. For the second time around. And what? And remember, they scheduled a vote. I think it was last Thursday, right? They announced they were going to vote. They were going to repeal Obamacare before 100 days, which was Saturday. Uh, they couldn't get the votes again. <laughs> so then Paul Ryan says, well, we'll do it when we get the uh, 206 to 216, but not before. So at the end of the week, they said, we're very close. We're going to have a vote. This week, all right, on Wednesday of this week, well, today's Wednesday, guess what? They don't have, they still don't have the votes. And one of the reasons is because now they, they've they been negotiating, the big reason is they've been negotiating with the Freedom Caucus, and the Freedom Caucus put this zinger in there for the, probably the most popular part of Obamacare. Yeah. which is insurance companies cannot deny you coverage if you have already some illness, some pre-existing condition, nor can they charge you more if you have like diabetes or something like some pre or MS, some pre-existing condition. And what the Freedom Caucus put in there is, oh no, that may stay in the bill, but it's, but states have the right to dump that and to allow insurance companies to charge more or not to offer insurance if you have it. So, it, in other words, you can't have it both ways. It's either in or it's out. And if you give states the right to opt out, like they can opt out of Medicaid, a lot of them are going to drop it. And now Republicans who have who know how popular this is, Republicans who have already felt the wrath of the American people in their town halls, there are more and more Republicans who say, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not going to go along with that. Yesterday, Fred Upton, who is one of the uh, from Michigan, 
uh, one of the members, I think he was a head, former head of uh, appropriations or Ways and Means, but a very powerful Republican, uh, came out and said he could never support this because it's too important for his people. Paul Ryan, meantime, still trying to defend it. Paul Ryan saying, no, it's in there. You just have to look carefully. There are a few layers of protections for pre-existing conditions <laughs> yeah. in this bill. Mm. What's important yeah. is we want to have a situation where people can afford their health insurance. Mm-hmm. We want to have a situation where people have a choice of health insurers. That's not happening in Obamacare. Still trying to sell that old nonsense. So yeah. by the way, they, they, several it, layers. Yeah, there are two layers at least. One is it's in, and the other is it's out, and that and then they're both in the bill. You can't have it both ways. Just just to put a fine point on that, right? Because you say that, and you're a Democrat. Yesterday, Republican Ileana Ross Leighton says, "Well, yes, the pre-existing conditions coverage that we talk about are quote in name only." So that she knows that it's not even real. This yeah. whole idea, Paul Ryan was out there running around saying, yes, it's yeah. verified that the pre-existing conditions will stay in. Donald Trump said the same thing. Remember we played that clip yesterday, Donald Trump saying, I mandated it. I ordered it. He doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. It's a lie. It's not in the bill. Yeah, Paul Ryan, Paul Ryan tweeted yesterday, verified MacArthur Amendment strengthens AHCA, protects people with pre-existing conditions. Does not. It doesn't. It it's gives, just a lie. It gives states the right to... Drop it. That's the pre-existing threat. conditions are in the bill, and yeah. I just watched uh, another network than yours, and they were saying pre-existing is not covered. Pre-existing conditions are in the bill, and I mandated. I said it has to be right. Uh, Paul Ryan again um, saying how close we are now to getting the votes. We're excited about this policy. Uh, we're making very good progress with our members, and our president has been instrumental in that. He he is just. You know, lying through his teeth. The the idea that now it hasn't happened yet. We have two more days of this week. But let me just say, they're not going to get. They're not going to get it this week. They're not going to get it. The idea that they finally have control of the House, the Senate, and the White House, and Paul Ryan can't even get. And they promised all of them campaigned on this, starting with Donald Trump and every single lousy Republican campaign on repealing Obamacare and doing it on the first day of office or certainly within the first 100 days. And the fact now that three different times they've come up to bat, three different times they've struck out, just shows what a feckless, hapless leader Paul Ryan is. I don't know why people even keep him in that position. He cannot deliver. Why does Donald Trump trust him? He cannot deliver. And to show you how hard-hearted they are, hard-hearted they are, and how far they're willing to go. Here's Congressman Mo Brooks yesterday saying that some people who may have, let's say, lung cancer, okay, because they were smokers. Sure. By the way, some people get lung cancer without ever having smoked at all. That's a thing. Just remember that. But Mo Brooks says those people who might have some kind of an illness today because of some of their bad habits in the past, drinking, maybe smoking, Maybe too much eating too much fast food. God knows. Mel Brooks says, why should we feel sorry for them? I think it's a legitimate public policy discussion to decide whether those people should have their health care knowing that they undertook the risk that resulted in their injuries. Should the rest of society have to pay for their health care under those kinds of circumstances? 
Yeah, just let them die. Yeah, just let them rot and die. Mm -mm. Don't even let them go to the emergency room because otherwise we have to pay for it. Right? Yeah, that, <laughs> there he is, speaking for the Republican caucus. You know, okay, you're a former smoker, whatever. No, we don't cover you. This is like, so like I know that a lot of Republicans have pointed to this clip and said, oh, he's just an outlier. This isn't how the whole Republican Party feels. B.S. Look at the bill. B.S. Look at the e bill. Exactly. You look at the bill and you look at what it says and you look at the, the movements that Paul Ryan has made. I mean, Paul Ryan supports that, whether or not he says it right out. Yeah. He supports that. He think, he he sits on some moral throne and acts like if you don't act as perfectly as he claims to, then you deserve to be sick and die and go into debt and fight that for your entire life. Yep. That's what Republicans believe. There he is. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, and he's laid it out there. Also, uh, yesterday at the White House, it was kind of, it really, really got wild. When uh, So we talked yesterday about the spending bill. The Congress has agreed. This was their uh, last year, last week, rather, on the, to avoid a shutdown. They were able to keep the government running for one more week. And now Republicans and Democrats have come together on a plan, as we discussed yesterday, uh, just reminding you to keep the government running until October, so five months. And that plan is like a total repudiation of the budget outline that Donald Trump revealed a couple of weeks ago. It contains no money for the wall. It contains a lot more money for medical research. It does not cut the State Department 30 percent, does not cut EPA. It doesn't do any of the things that Donald Trump wanted. It basically keeps the government running and even provides more money for domestic programs uh, and doesn't give $54 billion more to the, uh, to, to, to the Pentagon. Uh, but the White House just so it's a, a real um, Congress asserting its independence and a real setback for the Trump White House. Mick Mulvaney, the budget director, had to come out yesterday and try to defend it. Mick Mulvaney says, no, this is not a victory for Democrats. And in fact, there is more money in here for the wall. My guess is their base is not going to be very happy to know that we are building this. Okay, We are taking There's their taxpayer the money to build this. All right? That's the deal that we cut. And my guess is that's not going to sell very well with some folks on the left, but they're going to have to deal with that. Yeah, right. And he says this is no victory for the Democrats. The Dems have been trying to claim victory on this, um, which I think is a very strange way to look at a bipartisan discussion. If you're in a bipartisan meeting, I think it's very unusual for one group to walk out and start spiking the football and say, hey, we won. We killed the other guys. And it certainly doesn't bode very well for future discussions. No, no, no. But you know what's, you know what's even stranger? First of all, calm down. Yeah. What's even stranger is for the White House to claim victory when they, they got nothing that they wanted in this spending resolution. Nothing. There is not one dime in there. There's maybe some more money for some more border patrol guards or something. There's not one dime in there for building the wall. And then in the strangest press briefing maybe ever at the White House, Mick Mulvaney finishes and walks away, and John's, Sean Spicer walks away with him without taking one single question yesterday <coughs> Uh, and the press corps, not happy. Sean, 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 Sean,
Sean, Sean, please come back, Sean. Please come back, Sean. Sean. Oh, Sean. Poor Sean. All right. Take a quick break here. Matt Gertz from uh, Media Matters for America joins us next. Uh, Stay tuned here on this Wednesday edition of the Bill Press Show. We will repeal and replace this broken law because it's collapsing and it's failing families. And tomorrow we're proceeding. You have the votes? Do you have the votes? Get social with Bill Press. Like us at Facebook.com slash Bill Press Show. This is the Bill Press Show. Same great show, new great channel. Stream live video at youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. All right, on a Wednesday, May 3rd, welcome everybody, or welcome back to the Bill Press Show here. Uh, and our uh, hop, skip, and a jump through the big headlines of the day, the news of the day, bring it to you live from our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., where you find us on our, in our studio on Capitol Hill. And we're brought to you today by Amalgamated Bank. Yes, uh, you're looking for a progressive bank. They One, at least, does exist. It's amalgamated for almost a century now. It's been the bank of choice for progressive organization and organizations and individuals nationwide. You, too, no matter where you live, could bank at Amalgamated. Just go to amalgamatedbank.com. You can be a bank at Amalgamated. Be a proud progressive at the same time. Uh, lots of news happening uh, on the uh, media front. Matt Gertz from the great Media Matters for America here with us to tell us all about it. Hey, Matt, nice to see you. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Let's start with a big headline. Uh, so uh, who got fired at Fox today? <laughs> <laughs> no one yet, but it's still early. It's very early. <laughs> uh, and you never know. They've I mean, been falling like dominoes. They are. You know, t- uh, in the last year, we've seen them lose Three out of their four, uh, like le- leading evening news hosts, uh, with uh, obviously Bill O'Reilly recently being canned, following uh, Megyn Kelly, Kelly and Greta Van Susteren both right. leaving. Uh, Roger Ailes obviously, and was then three out of four year. of their um, leader. Well, two, two of Bill, Roger Ailes and Bill Shine. I yes, guess. Roger yeah. Ailes and Bill Shine, uh, who uh, was was the latest domino to fall. And uh, to replace, I don't know her name, but to replace Bill Shine, a woman, uh, in, unusual in the Fox hierarchy, um, but she has also been named, she was part of the leadership, has been of Fox for the last, what, 10 years or so, right? Yes, I mean, you... you and she's been named in some of these lawsuits as someone who didn't, who knew what was going on and didn't do anything about it. Absolutely. Um, you know, you would think that uh, hiring a woman would actually be a, a good a good right. start in changing the culture at Fox News, but actually, in in this case, it's really not. Uh, Suzanne Scott uh, is uh, someone who has been at Fox News since it launched in 1996. She was mm-hmm. a top lieutenant to Roger Ailes for years. Uh, she was most recently executive vice president of the network. Um, and uh, yes, as you say, she has been specifically named in several of these lawsuits as someone who uh, various women who were accusing uh, Fox News figures mm-hmm. of sexual harassment uh, would come to her and she would basically uh, 
throw their uh, story in a drawer and it would never be mentioned again. So she shows up in the Andrea Sinteros uh, sexual harassment suit. She shows up in the Julie Roginsky suit. Uh, she shows up most recently in the uh, the um, racial discrimination suit uh, being accused yeah. by Kelly Wright, um, an African-American Fox News anchor. Uh, and so time and again, she seems to be uh, someone who was standing up for the uh, figures at Fox who were being accused of sexual harassment uh, and trying to prevent people from telling their stories. Last week, Sean Hannity, who's a, a good friend, certainly, of uh, um, Bill Shine, yes. um, tweeted out, in, a, in essence, saying, um, if Bill Shine goes, Fox News goes, and uh, I could not stay here without him. He didn't say those words, but he implied that, right? And that he had a phrase based in his contract that would allow him to walk if Bill Shine or uh, Roger Ailes were not there. So what does Sean Hannity do? Um, right now, it doesn't seem like he's going anywhere. Uh, Bill Shine uh, was actually uh, got to start as one of Sean Hannity's producers, and mm -hmm. so they have a very long relationship. Yeah, um, you know, going back over the last couple of decades. Um, but and Sean Hannity does have uh, what's called a key man uh, clause oh, in his okay. contract yeah. that says that. Uh, if certain people were to leave Fox News, he'd be able to do so as well. This was something that came up um, in a lot of the discussions around whether Roger Ailes was going to leave. You know, mm -hmm. pe uh, people, uh, media uh, reporters were pointing out that if he left, it could uh, cause a rush to the exits with different Fox News figures exercising their key man clause and leaving. Um, none of them actually seem to have done so. And in fact, um, the uh, folks who left, Megyn Kelly and Greta Van Susteren, seem to have done so at least in part because of the pervasive culture of sexual harassment at Fox News. Yeah. Um, so it looks like Hannity stays? Yes. They, he um, did a meeting with the uh, staff of his show uh, last night, um, or uh, uh, yes, last night, uh, and basically said that he was not planning on leaving, that he was planning on sticking around. Um, so he will seem to remember, uh, seem to remain one of the last links to the early days of Fox News. A couple of weeks ago, we talked to Angelo Corson from Media Matters, and he was saying that one of the things that we're going to maybe start to see from Fox News is they're going to soften up on their uh, right wing rhetoric because they've got this. It's it's become sort of a liability for their global takeover plans, right? So this would be a moment where Fox News really could make that pivot and start to make those changes because they are sort of rudderless. They don't really have any real leadership now. I mean, for people who don't understand, Fox News was Roger Ailes and Bill Shine. Yeah. Those were the two guys. And after that, it's a pretty steep drop-off. So where do they go from here? I think it's a tough question. Um, you know... I think it's important to remember that a lot of the decision-making that is happening right now is very specifically generated by the idea of protecting all of uh, Rupert Murdoch's other investments. It's not like he's right. interested in changing the culture for its own sake at Fox News. Sure. Um, you know, we've seen over the last couple of months, first the sort of uproar around Andrew Nap Napolitano for making up a bunch of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, about uh, the British uh, Secret Service and whether they were investigating Donald Trump on behalf of Barack Obama. Uh, so that 
led to his uh, temporary suspension, which, you know, at Fox News, generally you don't get suspended for making things up about progressives. Generally you get rewarded. (laughs) Um, So that was uh, sort of interesting. Um, And then all of these uh, firings that have come out, this is all uh, the sort of backdrop for all of this is the Sky News deal in uh, in Britain, uh, where Rupert Murdoch is trying to take over the remainder of uh, the British uh, Sky Networks. Um, It's a, I believe, 14 billion dollar bid that's currently being reviewed by British regulators in part because. Um, they're trying to figure out if they think that he can be trusted with a major news yeah. outlet. Um, th- he uh, His bid was rejected back in 2011 because of the News of the World scandal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's in a position where uh, now Fox News could be the thing that is causing him to lose out on this thing that he really, really wants. And so he's basically throwing everything at the wall to try to keep that deal from going it, down. It should not be taken lightly that they are so concerned about what Fox News has done to news consumption in this country that they don't want to see it happen there. In Yeah, in the U.K. In the U.K. Yeah, we should learn something from that. Really? Um, enough about Fox News. <laughs> I want to know what the hell's happening at MSNBC. I mean, what was it? Lean left, or what was their um, their lean, slogan? Lean forward, lean, lean forward. forward. Yeah, right. Forward. Yeah, um, but clearly they were trying to be at least at one time, not that long ago, the alternative to Fox News. I mean, CNN sort of in the middle, or not knowing what the hell it was doing. But Fox was clearly right, and then MSNBC was clearly left with even Ed Schultz back at the time, mm-hmm. Chris Hayes, Rachel Maddow, right, and now. Uh, they just dumped Steve Karnacki and the boss in. There's talk that they're giving Hugh Hewitt his own show on MSNBC. So have they decide now they're going to lean right? They're going to out, out Fox Fox? Or? Yeah, this is a question that's been really baffling me for the last several months. I don't really know what they're thinking because there is a <laughs> massive audience of liberals that is basically begging for any option that they can uh, go to for sort of uh, a, a um, you know opinion commentary that yeah. is against yeah. Trump. Like this was a very successful method that MSNBC employed in the latter half of the Bush administration with Olbermann and then Maddow, um, and you know they built up this entire lineup of liberal commentators uh, and hosts and did very well for a few years, and then in the back half of the Obama administration that started to falter. Um, I would assume in large part because, uh, you know, as the administration wound down, you sort of ran out of uh, uh, of interesting ways to approach the but same But with the election of tonight. Trump, there has to yes. be a greater appetite. We there, know is. there is. Absolutely. We, we experience it here. And you can see show. this in the ratings for yeah. their uh, their opinion programming right now. Is They're off the charts. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah. uh, Rachel Maddow is having some of the best ratings she's ever had. She's winning the demo in her time slot, which is basically unheard of. Uh, Fox generally dominates everything, uh, but she's having great ratings. Um, you know, the, the other uh, commentators uh, in, in, the, in those time slots are doing very well as well. Uh, but MSNBC is really going against the grain. They're doing everything they can to avoid putting more of that on the air. Um, you know, they're giving a show to Nicole Wallace. They're uh, apparently talking about giving one to Hugh Hewitt. Um, you've seen a sort of move away from liberal talk and towards more uh, down the road mainstream or, or even more uh, sort of politics heavy beltway commentary of the sort of morning Joe 
uh, Chuck Todd bent. Uh, there was a great article, I don't know if you saw it, from Ryan Grimm the other day at the Huffington Post who basically uh, reported that this is all Andy Lack's vision, that he came back this to NBC. This is the NBC. guy I was trying to think yeah. of. Yeah, yeah. Andy Lack. He, he came back to, to NBC News and took over MSNBC in uh, uh, spring of 2015, and since then... The liberal hosts have been pushed out. More conservatives have been brought in. Uh, it's not really working well in the time slots where he's changed hosts. Yeah. And the, the ones that he hasn't touched have done great. Um, so <laughs> he's, he's, I mean, he's basically, he's remaking the network in his own image in ways that actually make the network make less money, which is baffling. Like, if, you know, we generally think, oh, these news networks, it's all capitalism. They're They're trying to just make a ton of money. But in this case, they're very clearly not trying to make money, no, uh, and I just don't understand. I gotta say, you know, I don't want to give him too much praise, but you've got to admire Roger Ailes. Roger Ailes knew what he wanted, knew what Fox News was going to be, and he never wavered, never veered. And, and there was a lot of people in the beginning who said this is never going to work, not going to work. You know, it's just too one-sided or whatever. And he put his people on there. Some of them, even Bill O'Reilly, you know, didn't get good ratings in the beginning. But Rogers was that that was his north star, right? And that was his success. And and I think the contrast between the other net cable networks that are flopping around, trying to still yeah. trying to decide who they are. We're at, we're at a moment now where you can you look at what people are banking on. They're banking on the popular vote versus the electoral college, right? They're they're banking on. The resist. I mean, that that is the phrase that pays these days, right? Resist, resistance, all that stuff. And so MSNBC actually has some credibility there. They've been doing this for a little while now. Well, they're losing it. And they're losing it. They're throwing it all away. And for what? What are they doing? Yeah. I don't get it. I guess Andy Lack, uh, you know, gets to talk at the cocktail parties about how he's, you know, bringing reasonable conservatives into the discourse. I don't know. It doesn't make a lot of sense to All me. Right. Matt Gertz with us on Media Matters. So important Media Matters for America. Um, now, what, 10 years, 11 years Media Matters? For Media Matters, 14 years. 14. Yeah. There you go. Right. Man. Um, God, I'm getting old. I remember when there was no Media Matters. You guys can start yeah. sneaking your dad's booze here soon. <laughs> now, we even have the New York Times, which has been the bastion of, I must say, of really good investigative reporting, along with the Washington Post, uh, and really calling out the facts, you know, to, to counter Donald Trump's lies and exaggerations. And now they've <laughs> they've let uh, one of the uh, enemy in the, in the camp... Right, this is Brett Stevens. Yeah, I, I want to draw some distinctions here because I think okay. that's important. Because you know, as you yeah. say, I think the Times does a lot of fantastic reporting. I think they're, they're essential. I've read them my entire life. My parents read it their entire life. Uh, you know, my grandparents but, literally took the New York Times uh, to their deathbeds. Um, but th I mean, but this, this so th now the, now we're talking the about reporting the, under yes. Trump has been incredible. They've done okay. a lot of great stuff. I, I think what we're talking about now is is the the op-ed op page, page yes. um, the columnist selection. And to be honest, I, I think that the Times op-ed page for quite some time has been sort of moribund. Um, you know, I think uh, having um, Krugman there is, is a fantastic innovation. Yes. Have someone who's not a right. professional journalist actually commentating on on a major uh, page. But you know, they've had a lot of they've had very little turnover, and after a while. Uh, you know, op-ed columnists have a tendency to run out of things to write about and just sort of become parodies of themselves. Um, so can so I say, is... for example, all right, can sure. I say, I think Dave, I do 
am not a fan of David Brooks. I know he walks on water for most people. I, I find I get nothing out of David Brooks. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't get much out of most of them. I don't get much out of David Brooks. I don't get much out of Tom Friedman. I don't get anything out of Maureen Dowd, and I haven't for quite some time. Charles um, Blow, I like. I like Charles Blow. Um, I think they never were able to successfully replace Bob Herbert, which is a shame. Yes. I think yeah. they don't have anyone who's a real leftist. I think they don't have anyone who's a real like pro-Trump conservative. So what they did now was they hired Brett Stevens away from the Wall Street Journal, which is interesting in a couple of reasons. First of all, I mean, it's literally a lateral move uh, for Stevens. They, they grabbed someone from a, another major newspaper and moved it to their own newspaper rather than sort of expanding the field of columnists in any real yeah. way. He's a third anti-Trump conservative on the same page, um, which means he's not really expanding the debate too much. He's a neoconservative, which is a little bit different from Brooks and from Douthat, the other conservative on the page. Uh, but it's not like you can't find a neoconservative, you know, at mm -hmm. every other major newspaper. So again, not really expanding the field much. Um, but the real reason that the Brett Stevens um, hire and his initial column was uh, climate change, annoying, right? yes, on climate change, right? Was was this was very um, uh, dispiriting to a lot of Times readers and especially the newer subscribers. Um, was because, he, yes, his, his first column is about how there's too much certainty around climate change and uh, how people who uh, are making the case for climate change need to be more accepting of the fact that they could be wrong about everything. This is sort of a – it's an incredibly um, – it's not an argument that's made in good faith. There is literally no information that could be provided to Brett Stevens that could get him to change his opinions on any of this. And in fact, it was built around a falsehood that the first column already has a major correction on it. Um, he had one fact, one climate fact in the entire piece, uh, and it was his claim that um, the evidence showed a modest uh, warming of the northern hemisphere of 0.85 degrees Celsius, which said it's not doesn't seem to be that big a deal. Um, but it turns out that the figure is actually 0.85 degrees warming for the entire globe, which is worse than just <laughs> for the Northern Hemisphere, yeah. obviously. Um, you know, as, as Think Progress's Joe Rome looks at this, he says, that's not a modest increase. It's the same as the entire variation the Earth experienced during the several thousand years of stable climate um, in the past. So... The, pro the reason this is a problem for the Times is because they laid down a marker early in the Times administration and said, we're standing up to alternative facts. You know, a lot of people started taking in subscriptions to the Times in light of the election and Donald Trump's yeah, yeah, um, right. rise. I, I think that was in some ways not a great idea because I think their political <laughs> reporting during the election was not fantastic, but set that aside for a minute. Um, the Times sold newspapers off of that idea. They, you know, put yeah. out print yeah. and yes. digital ads saying yes. we're against alternative facts, we're pro-truth. They uh, put out a uh, television ad during the Emmys that basically made the same point. Um, they were going to be like a bulwark against this idea of alternative facts. And if you're going to make that claim, if you're going to sell subscriptions off of that, you actually need to back it up. You got to deliver. You got to deliver. And you, you got to deliver you in don't. the opinion section as well. You can't say, yeah. okay, we've, we've got yeah. one set of facts for the news page and we've got an entirely different set of facts for the opinion page and that's just fine. You can't do that. Right. You look ridiculous. 
Uh, and so now they're in a situation where a lot of Time subscribers got very angry. Some of them said they're going to cancel their subscriptions uh, in light of these columns. Um, you know, and the Times is kind of You've, you've got sort of a divide in the newsroom. You've got uh, a bunch of the more um, uh, of the more uh, reportorial uh, times people and especially the climate reporters trying to disassociate themselves from this column. And then you've got uh, others in uh, especially at the political desk and the national desk who are basically crapping on their own subscribers saying, I can't believe, you know, people would want to drop the paper over this. This so is ridiculous. Is, uh, I guess Donald Trump is right when he calls it the failing New York Times? No, Donald Trump's <laughs> not right when he calls it the failing New York Times. Um, you know, they, they have seen some significant subscriber growth, um, which is yeah. good, but it's also something that is essential for the New York Times. They uh, Their most recent, their 2020 plan uh, that they just, that they released earlier this year says that they need to refocus around being a subscriber newspaper, that that's going to be their main source of revenue because you know all the other revenue models are terrible like advertising is not working at all either, even uh, in the digital space it's much much worse um you know classified sections are completely gone um but they're, so they're trying to refocus around this idea of making money off of their subscriber base the problem with that is subscriptions are really expensive yeah. you know yeah. it's it's nine hundred dollars a year if you want seven day delivery to your home uh, and you know when something is that expensive, it's it's a sacrifice for people, um, and people are going to expect when they are spending nine hundred dollars or something that is sold to them as a bulk against alternative effects, they're actually going to get that, yeah. right? I mean, journalism yeah. is a priceless nine, resource. Nine hundred dollars a year. Yeah, for for seven day a week delivery, uh, it is nine hundred dollars a year. Jesus. I have seven dollars a week, seven days a week delivery at my home. I had no idea we were paying nine hundred dollars for that. Carol pays the bills. I don't. And not, you know, I, I think newspaper what? subscriptions I, aren't cheap. And I would, by the I would, way, I, would I, argue live, it's, I live by the time, so I couldn't I, so do, do it. I, I would argue that it's worth it. I think that it that yeah, the but, that the international reporting is essential. <laughs> that the climate reporting I'm is essential. Done. That we're but, paying that much for the time. I mean, it's not cheap. And for those yeah. for those of us who aren't like you and I, who who don't live and die by the New York Times, that's too expensive if you're not getting what you were expecting. All right, I want to ask you this. So this last weekend, we sort of had a duel, if not a war, right? Uh, between the White House correspondents and Donald Trump. And it all played out on national television, right? Who won? Uh, I mean, I, I was uh, watching the Samantha B event, so I kind of missed the whole thing. Um, but well, that's right. There's a third player here, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 There's the sort of all, the alternative uh, would, White House I would, correspondents. I would, I would hasten to say she did not win. Might have had a nice event, but it was not... Yeah, I mean, I, the I blockbuster think, I thought it was. Going I don't to think be. there's really a, a winning but, here. I don't think anybody I mean, won. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there were no the, winners. The, the, <laughs> the White House Correspondents Association is trying to defend their valuable place in you know the mechanisms of democracy, uh, but if you're defending that, you're you're probably losing. I mean, if if you need to say we're not fake news, that that's not a yeah. great sign. Yeah. Um, you know, Donald Trump has been a terrible president who's been very ineffective at like actually achieving most of his aims but from a communication standpoint he's convinced all of his supporters that he is right and the the media are liars but that was that was a whole thrust of his campaign yep. every single rally yep so he has another rally saying the same thing sure. he said all last year how does that move 
things forward for him at all. I mean, what 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 does he gain by that? He didn't didn't gain any new supporters, did he? No. Um, you know, and, but he's not really he doesn't really seem to be trying to gain new supporters in any way. He seems to be uh bent on consolidating the support that he already has. Why is he giving so many interviews if he hates the media so much? Uh, because he's also like an egomaniac. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, breaking news. I know, right? Uh, <laughs> I also think we should keep in mind, he doesn't hate the media as he, much as he claims to. He exactly. loves the media. He yeah. loves attention, and he yeah. desperately yeah. wants to be liked. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, he is, he is a huge, he is the biggest consumer of uh, totally. coverage about himself that we've seen in the <laughs> yeah. White House. And quite so. I mean, he literally spends his mornings and his evenings watching Fox News and tweeting about it, which is bizarre and kind of scary. Uh, <laughs> but that's sort of what he does. Um, and the idea of people not liking him is something that seems to offend him quite a bit. Yeah. They are our watchdog on the left, Media Matter, MediaMatters.org. Matt Gertz, thanks so much for coming in. Congressman this David Cicilline coming Bill up next. Press show. Hey, everybody, this is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now, do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for the Bill Press show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. Everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Donald Trump says uh, he's got an idea about how to save the government. Shut it down. Yeah, there you go. Uh, and uh, the Republicans claim that they don't want to do it. And then Donald Trump says they do. Go figure it out. I can't. It is the Bill Press Show. Hello, everybody. Great to see you on this Wednesday, May 3rd. Coming to you live from our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., and our studio right here on Capitol Hill. Good to have you with us today, wherever you happen to be in this great land of ours. We'll bring you up to date on the news of the day. What's happening just down the street from us at the United States Congress? What's happening at the White House around the country uh, and around the globe? Coming to you all part of the Young Turks Network on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show, on Free Speech TV, uh, on our podcast, which you can find at billpressshow.com. Uh, and don't forget, as we mentioned yesterday, we are new on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com, with all kinds of exclusive content there. Patreon.com slash BP show. Sorry, patreon.com slash BP show. Go and sign up and uh, you will um, be hearing from us many times. So some really good stuff. We are very pleased to welcome here to the studio to bring us up to date on what's going on down the street here at the Congress and on a big piece of legislation induced, introduced yesterday, Congressman David Cicilline from... Rhode Island. Hello, Congressman. Good morning. Great Welcome to be back. You. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's nice to see you. We'll jump right into the news of the day with a good congressman. But first, Peter. This Headlines is the, the full day. court yes. press. Yes, indeed. Just a couple other stories making news yesterday on Capitol Hill. 
chief executive of United Airlines, was talking about what the hell happened with David Dow, the pastor who was dragged Mm. off. United CEO Oscar Munoz apologized, said that they had some major problems, said that they are going to try and address it and fix that. However, uh, Republican House Transportation Committee Chairman Bill Schuster from Pennsylvania told Munoz, you guys are going to have to fix this, and if you don't, we will. Congress said they would step in, and he also went on to say, we're going to act, quote, and you are not going to like it. Mm. So they got to get their act together, or Congress is going to fix it for them. Fly the friendly skies, Congressman, right? right? <laughs> you know, I'm going out to the West Coast this weekend. I'm not sure I what airline. I, because Amer- Amer- I know American and Americans had its problems, yeah. too. If you don't want to fly, you can always take the train. A Japanese railway company has launched a new luxury sleeper train. It has sky views, bathtubs, dark wood interiors. Oh, my God. $10,000 per person for a four-day trip from Tokyo to Hokkaido. It is the Trans Suite Shikishima is what it's called. And, again, it's a 10-car train. You want a special four-day trip just to yourself with all that luxury? $10,000. It sounds the like the Oriental Express. Right? Yeah, right? That was so yeah. popular. for. I don't think that was uh, $10,000, though. <laughs> I, I, I but I was on one of those trips. I mean, never took that <laughs> trip. Gonna, but right. in Paris, I was there once when they had a couple of the two or three of the cars yeah, the you could go that, through. Yeah. Oh man, that beautiful. was beautiful. That was luxury in its day for sure. And Michael Moore recently gave an interview. He is sort of one of the people who predicted that Donald Trump could win. He's not only is he coming back with a Broadway yeah. show, right. which he is going to do. Uh, but he gave an interview about where Democrats should turn for their next presidential candidate. He says, "How about Rhode Island?" I'd like to. <laughs> he says the Democrats should turn to the next presidential candidate, Dwayne the Rock Johnson, performer, professional wrestler, now movie star. He says, uh, "Quote: Run the Rock, run the Rock. Who do you want for commander in chief? I want the effing Rock. It would scare anybody that would want to hurt us. Think about how safe we would be if the Rock was president." Republicans want him, too. The cover of National Review this past week was yeah. The Rock. I, which I thought was a joke. I saw it on Twitter. I thought it was, I, a, I thought joke it was a joke until too. I saw the actual cover. And it was the thing they were saying, we need The Rock. It's like, okay, whatever. Is, is he a Republican or a Democrat? I don't know. I, I honestly don't know. Look, stranger things have happened. Donald Trump got elected. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Radio, on TV, and online. This is the Bill Press Show. And off we go here on a Wednesday, May 3rd, the Bill Press Show, coming to you live coast to coast. And it's good to have you with us today as we tackle the big stories of the day with a good friend, Congressman David Cicilline from Rhode Island. Congressman, it's good to see you. Great to be with uh, you. I want you to know, um, end, of the, end of next month, we're going to be uh, heading up to your fair state. Oh, wonderful. Up to uh, Weekapog, I think oh, we talked before. Yes, a great little part, Great yeah. little part of the world. It sure yeah. is. We don't want anybody to know about I the southern... I was going to say, people <laughs> from Weekapog don't even like to talk no. about it. No, right. The southern I grew road. up in Narragansett, and oh, I still, yeah. like, I only learned about Weekapog like 10 years ago, <laughs> and they blindfolded me to take me there, so I'd never find so it again. Never, right. <laughs> Just up the road from Watch Hill and yeah. Squamacut, it's a beautiful it little sure part is. of the uh, part of the country. So it will be, you got uh, real credentials there, and you know you, you know what you're talking about. 
yeah. and just down the road from Quantiquatog. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> when Tucker and I were doing, uh, Tucker Carlson and I were doing a, a show called The Spin Room on CNN, years ago we got an uh, email from uh, from one of the one of the viewers who said, uh, my, I'm from this little town. I'm sure nobody there knows how to pronounce it. Yes, I do. Not many people know <laughs> right. how to pronounce it, but as soon as I saw it, I did. Congressman, uh, congratulations on introducing again yesterday the Equality Act. Uh, we talked about it the first time around. This yes. is uh, number two, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, we introduced the bill, and just to remind your listeners, this is uh, the most comprehensive civil rights bill introduced since the Civil Rights Act of 1964. It essentially takes all of the existing civil rights architecture and expands it to include uh, discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity. So it, it prohibits discrimination in housing, public accommodations, employment, credit, jury service, federal funding, and education. Uh, and it's really the only way to once and for all end discrimination against members of the LGBT community uh, in every aspect of life. And I'm very proud that the bill was introduced with the largest number of co-sponsors in the House ever, with really? 195 members of the House, Any including Republicans? one Republican. <laughs> so it's officially bipartisan uh, and a very large number in the Senate as well. But we continue to see... Uh, support grow for the bill. I think if the bill came to the floor, it would pass because I think uh, the country would really activate and demand mm-hmm. that it pass. Uh, I think you know it'll be difficult to get the speaker to bring it to the floor, but we're going to try really hard. For, well, who's the Senate sponsor? Or? Uh, Senator Merkley from Oregon. Se- Senator Merkley, yeah. Great guy, Terrific great guy, friend, yeah. and uh, been on our show several times. Now, I think a lot of people hearing you mention that would say, this can't believe this doesn't already exist. It's actually the biggest challenge we have. The the American people overwhelmingly support the idea that you shouldn't be able to fire someone from their job or kick them out of their apartment because of their sexual orientation or gender identity. In fact, people think it's already the law, but the reality is that in a majority of states in this country, there is, in fact, no protection. So you can be married uh, on Saturday, post your wedding uh, pictures on Facebook on Sunday, and kicked out of your apartment or fired from your job on Monday in most states in this country. And there is no federal protection or very limited protection as it relates to employment, but no federal statutory protection. And many states have no protection at all. And so what we're seeing, unfortunately, after the Supreme Court decision of marriage equality, I think a lot of people thought, oh, this is it. We're equal. And so if you're not a lawyer or you're not someone who's active in this movement, you think, oh, I can get married to my partner in Georgia. I must be protected. And so people are actually you know, doing that and then yeah. suddenly being discriminated against because there are no other protections. And well, so, you know, you would think if you have the right to marry, that must mean you're fully yeah, equal. Yeah, of course. That's, but, the, that's the, the important point here, I think, is so many people take it for granted and they think that we've made so much progress, which we have, but there are still a lot of loose ends that have not been tied up legally, right? So like like you said, there are a lot of people who could still get fired for that stuff. And, you know, we got to take care of that or else... But, it can be used against them, and, and, and these yeah. days it probably will. Well, and there are examples, sadly, you know, very substantial numbers of uh, members of the LGBT community who have experienced discrimination in accessing health care and accessing housing in, uh, in the employment context. So it's a real issue. You know, there are real people whose lives are affected by this discrimination. Yeah. And frankly, it's sort of, you know, 
a core value of our country, this idea of equality and fairness, the idea that you shouldn't be discriminated against because of who you are. And so I think there is no question in the world that the Equality Act will become the law of the land. Mm. The only question is how quickly we do it. And by the way, this is about Congress catching up to the American people because the American people already support this idea. And in fact, to your beginning question, one of the hardest challenges when you explain this to people, they think, oh, my God, that's not already the law. They almost can't believe it. So uh, this is just it, unfortunately one more example of where Congress has to catch up to the American people. It, I mean, it, to me, it sounds like just an affirmation of the Constitution. That's if you right. believe in the Constitution, right. how could you oppose this legislation? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, I, I try to see both sides of every issue. Right. It's tough seeing the other side I of this agree. issue. I agree. And I think when you give people real-life so, examples of qualified people who are fired from their job when it's learned that they're a gay or lesbian uh, or you know people who are you know, denied service in a restaurant, I mean, you give people real-life examples, and uh, I think it's hard for them to justify well, that behavior. Particularly when they realize it could be my sister, right, my cousin, right. You know, my son, daughter, whatever, right. you know. Family members, and isn't that why the marriage equality moved as kind of as fast as that moved? Talk about something that moved a lot yeah. faster than uh, politicians, right, no, or I Congress. Think right. Yeah. I think that's right, and I think you know it's why coming out or being honest about who you are is really valuable because it it, it lets people know it's yeah. my work colleague, it's my cousin, it's my right. sister. And it, it, you know, it, it puts a face on mm-hmm. a, a, mm-hmm. a theory of non-discrimination because, it, you know, it's felt by real people. So, it, you know, everyone has to do it at their own pace, and it's not always easy, but it makes a real difference. You know, uh, I didn't read the article, but I saw uh, a point today somewhere where it was a um, – can't find it now – but <laughs> a, a funeral home that refused to bury a man because mm-hmm. he was gay. Yeah. And I'm thinking, what the hell? I mean, mm-hmm. how could you be so yeah. close-minded, for one right. thing? And, and imagine what? a family going through the grief of burying yeah. Like their son or something like that. that. Right. And then have to address And that. what difference would it make? Right. You know? or right. just, so, but you said something that really struck me. It, I don't know how anybody could vote against this, but and I do believe with you that if you really put it to a vote and tested them, they'd find it. Even a lot of Republicans would find it hard to oppose. Why hasn't it come? Why didn't the first one come up for a vote? Well, I mean, again, we the schedule of what we vote on is really determined by the Speaker by of the, the House. Yeah, and right. uh, so, Speaker Ryan has, we've asked uh, that this be brought to the floor on a number of occasions. We'll continue to ask. Uh, some people actually said, you know, with the Republicans in control of Congress, why are you bothering to introduce the Equality Act well, if the Speaker won't do it? And I said, look, part of it is. We have to continue to build support for the bill, and we need to hold these other individuals accountable. If the Absolutely. speaker doesn't bring this to the floor, then he's responsible for denying you know, millions and millions of members of the LGBT community right. of equality. So who is he answering to? That's what I'm trying to get at. By, uh, by not bringing it to a vote. Well, I think he's answering to the most extreme members of his caucus uh, who don't support the bill. I mean, you know, I worked hard to try to get... Republican co-sponsors because I want this to be viewed as a bipartisan effort to bring equality to our community. Uh, And despite this now being the second year, we only have a single Republican, which I think says something. I mean, it's it's a it's a value that is a deeply American value, the idea that people should not be discriminated against. 
And it's to me astonishing that that we have you know virtually every single member of the Democratic caucus in the House on the bill and only one Republican. And I think the people who have refused to sign on to this on the Republican side need to answer to that. You know, they have people in their own so, communities that they represent who they apparently yeah, are comfortable yeah. with being denied basic equality under the law. That's that's completely unacceptable. And, and I mean, breaking news here, right? But there are some gay Republicans. I mean, I know a lot of them. Right? I mean, yeah. so this idea that this should be a partisan issue right. is it, ridiculous. It shouldn't be. Well, so it's the evangelicals that have such a lock on the party? Or you know, it, I don't Catholics? even know if it's if it's the even I, I I think it is my sense is it's more of a failure to understand that we are we have evolved as a society. I think they have some old ideas of what people think about uh, the LGBT community and the I think they don't recognize that the actual the polling data shows that people are you know deeply reject the notion of discriminating against people based on sexual orientation or gender identity yeah. and so i think they're just sort of stuck in a earlier time period and uh you know it's really important for them to hear from their constituents who are members of our community to make this case but i i think it's just old thinking and uh you know yeah. when you look at the polling they data they still for, think it would be a political liability right. and they're completely where, wrong fact, yeah, they're right. completely wrong and yeah. in fact it's going to be a political liability ultimately if they, if don't, they don't sign do onto the bill right. but they don't realize that yet so can we ask you the name of the lone brave republican oh sure eliana ross layton from florida yeah yeah if it were not her i was going to ask you why isn't she on the yeah, bill no, no. <laughs> right she yeah. was on it last time as well so good for her yeah absolutely yeah. she's terrific yeah. Uh, and uh, we know her son is a transgender. Yes. She has a transgender yeah. son. But yeah. there's so many other people. Rob Portman, is he a supporter? Uh, he's not on the bill currently. Okay, well. Let's, he let's, should be. He should be. Yeah. Yeah, let's work on him. Yeah. But you don't have to have a gay member of your well, family to support the bill. It's like, you, you know, when I hear these stories, right, yeah. like, the, in, you know, in Rob Portman's case, you know, Senator Portman, it was great that his son coming out helped him realize, but the idea that it never occurred to him there were other families and other parents exactly. and other young people who had that experience that he had to have it himself, but sometimes that's what it takes. You know, on that one point, I'll give Dick Cheney credit where, you know, he yeah. bucked President Bush and others, you know, with his daughter right. uh, having a partner. And uh, I think they, they got married, right. I believe, right? Right. Yeah, and that, and Dick said, not just for my family, but yeah. everybody should have yeah. that opportunity. And I think people so. are going to look back at this time in our history and say, you mean there was a time that it was yeah, okay to right. you know kick people out or deny them service in a restaurant because of who they were? And uh, this is not America, so well, I think yeah. we'll, we'll definitely get there. And our goal is to shorten right. that period as much as we can. Well, before we move on from this, good for you and thank you for introducing this legislation again. And if people want to help, want to put some prayer, what should what can they do to, to, to well, help? Well, they should just cause. be sure that their member of Congress is supporting the Equality Act. If they're not already a co-sponsor, uh, encourage them to do that because I think hearing, as you know, members hearing from their own constituents about what the impact of a piece of legislation would be on their lives is always mm -hmm. the most powerful message. Right. So those phone calls really, really do make a difference. No and I've told you many times, but uh, it's stuck in my brain. I used it three times yesterday, actually. 202-224-3121 will get you to any member of the House or the Senate. Uh, and the way it works is you put in your zip code, and they'll connect you to your member of Congress. And But if you want to talk to any other member of Congress, doesn't have to be just—you can call anybody, not just your 
Maybe you're more effective if you call the person right. who represents you. But if you push zero, you get the operator and ask for any senator or any member of Congress and they'll connect you to their office and tell them, we want you to support the Equality Act. That's exactly. important that the, uh, that the members hear Absolutely. from the American people. Um, so we hopefully we can get this passed, Congressman. How are we going to do with the repeal of Obamacare? The Republicans, they're determined they're going to do it, right? Yeah, it's hard to understand uh, this sort of renewed effort. I mean, this is a, a piece of legislation which has helped millions and millions of Americans uh, for all the reasons that you've spoken about on your show, providing access to health care for people with pre-existing medical conditions, allowing young people to stay on their parents' plans, ending lifetime caps, and on and on and on. And look, is it a perfect bill? Are things we can do to create more competition, to have a, to have a, a public option? There are terrific ideas yep. out there. And if the Republicans were interested in working with Democrats to make Obamacare work even better, they have a willing partner in the conversation. But of course, they're not interested in that. They've been for 50 or 60 times now tried to repeal it or defund it in its entirety. And now they're in the position of controlling the House, the Senate, and the White House. It's sort of like the dog who caught the car. Uh-oh, <laughs> now what? They don't actually want to do it because they always had President Obama to veto it yeah, so the right. public would never be yeah. harmed by the repeal. Well, now they're in a different position. And rather than saying, you know what, let's give up this repeal idea. Let's work together to make it work even better and make some improvements. It's a complicated bill. It was a major transformation. They ha aren't there yet, and so they're still trying to pander to their base where they you know, parade around during their campaigns and say, we're going to repeal it. It's the most awful thing, and the president said the same thing. Well, that should that's a lesson. Don't make claims like that that are factually inaccurate. It's not the most awful thing. It's a very good piece of legislation that's really helped people, but you've set that up for yourselves, and so now they feel obligated to go through with it. I think it's a disaster for them if they move forward on it, it will be really devastating for the American people and politically very harmful to them. If they pass a bill just to pass something in the House to get it off their agenda so they can go back to their constituents and say, well, we kept our word, and the Senate doesn't take it up, which they likely will not, right. then you've asked your House Republicans to sort of walk the plank mm -hmm. for no reason. I mean, that to me is, you know, a Speaker <laughs> of the House should not put his members in that position. He should just say, right. I'm not going to ask you to do that. But they seem intent. They're still trying. I mean, as of last night, I don't think they had the votes, but they're still trying. And this will be the third time. Correct. Right. That they, it looks like that they will have tried and failed. Right. Which you say when they control everything. Right. And they can't even do it. Right. Which is why, you know, the idea that <laughs> people, you know, are really expecting us to work in a way that helps to create good paying jobs, raise people's incomes, address the economic uncertainty in people's lives, and to think that all of this energy is focused on how can we rip away health insurance from 24 million Americans? How can we give a big benefit to drug companies and CEOs of health insurance companies uh, and allow insurance companies to uh, charge an age tax on older Americans for their insurance, make deep cuts in Medicare and Medicaid? Also, you can provide 600 billion dollars in tax cuts to the wealthiest Americans. The 400 richest families would get a $7 million tax cut each. I mean, you just have to wonder who wakes up in the morning and says, this yeah, is what this I want to set out to do. And the American people want us to focus on jobs, rebuilding the infrastructure of our country, helping to make college more affordable. But they have spent so much time focused on this it's almost like a personal political beef, a score that yeah. they need to settle that just makes no sense. Now, the one part of uh, Obamacare, and from the beginning, they said, well, we're going to keep the best parts of Obamacare. We're just going to provide, you know, more choice or with cheaper plan, whatever. Could be Not wonderful, better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Uh, but the one part that everybody says is good is, is the protection for people with pre-existing conditions. Now, it appears, the Freedom Caucus has convinced people, no, we can get rid of that too and survive. We'll just give states the option to opt right. out of it. Right. See, they will, so you've got Donald to... Trump saying, I've de demanded that that be part of the bill. And then the freedom, they put it in there that states can opt out. So right. it's not part of the bill no, anymore. No, it's not. And it gives them the ability to vote for a bill and then say, oh, I didn't take away the coverage for pre-existing condition. That was the state who did it. Of course, you allow them to do it. And the process is if you don't get an answer in 60 days, you get the waiver automatically. So they've facilitated it. And you're absolutely right. They're trying to have it both ways. Yeah. Paul Ryan you, yesterday put out that tweet where he said verified that this yeah. – Keeps pre-existing conditions in the bill. It's yeah, just not true. Just not true. And, and you quoted uh, the good congresswoman from Florida, Ileana, Ileana Ross Layton, who said that that idea of the pre-existing conditions still being the bill, they're in the bill, quote, in name only. In Correct. Name. I yeah. think that's exactly right. Right. So uh, It's insulting to the American people that they think people can't figure this out. Uh, if you give insurance companies and, the, it, and some states the ability to to waive that requirement, it will be waived in a number of jurisdictions. Of They've already said that. Well, look, and insurance companies will, of course, do it or they'll charge a lot more money for it. Yeah. So it will make pre-existing condition coverage, in some cases, impossible, and in other cases, much more expensive. You know, when, you look, when you look at the Republicans and how they tried to repeal Obamacare all those times when, when President Obama was in office, you look at the fact that they didn't have a plan ready for when they actually got power back. You look at the fact that even though now they have some version of a plan, they can't even get their own members to vote yeah. for it. They can't get the pre-existing condition stuff in there. There is a narrative that has been built and continues to build that Republicans do not know how to govern. How to govern. Yeah. They yeah. don't know how to lead. Well, I think it's because, in fact, part of their kind of governing philosophy to the extent that it is a governing philosophy is they don't fundamentally believe in government. No. And the right. ability of government to do important things to positively impact people's lives. And so if your effort is to either shut down the government, which is what you know, they were gleeful about, or to, to, to substantially undermine its function because you actually don't think it does anything well or anything right or anything proper. So, you know, Democrats, we believe in the ability of government when accountable and when, you know, properly done can impact people's lives. It, it it created Social Security and Medicare and Pell Grants and the interstate highway system and, and on and, and scientific research that led to cures for disease. I mean, we believe that government, when done properly and when people are accountable, produces good results in people's lives. They fundamentally don't believe that. And so in the end, it's not a big surprise that they aren't right. capable of governing. Their heart isn't in it. Yeah. Yeah. Their heart's yeah, just yeah, not yeah, in yeah. it. That's a really good point. I, I want to play you a quick clip that, to me, it just summed up what the, the, so many of these Republicans feel about the Affordable Care Act. Um, and, and you, you know, you mentioned the stories of the people who've been negatively impacted still by this discrimination, which still exists against members of the LGBT community. And we've heard all these stories also of people who for the first time in their lives now, they've, they've had these horrible diseases they've been living with, never able to get health insurance. Now they have it for the very first time and they risk losing it. But here's Congressman Mo Brooks. He's talking about some of these people who may have done some things they shouldn't have done and they got some illness. His basic philosophy is, I think, so what? Here he is yesterday. I think it's a legitimate public policy discussion to decide whether those people should have their health care knowing that they undertook the risk that resulted in their injuries. Should the rest of society have to pay for their health care under those kinds of circumstances? 
Yeah. Smokers or somebody might right. have been done. But what he leaves out of the pre the, that conversation right. is the child who's born with congenitive heart failure. Thank you. Or a child who's born who has childhood leukemia. They, they didn't do anything to cause that. And that parent would tell you that, that the idea, I mean, <clears throat> we've heard so many of these stories where yeah. a parent says, you know, finally I can go to bed at night. My husband and I fall asleep knowing that our child has health insurance. And we, for the last, you know, six years since her birth, have been terrified that when she gets really sick, she has no coverage because she has a pre-existing condition. We can't get insurance. And for the first time, my husband and I can sleep. Like, I've heard these stories yeah. of, like, parents for the, to know that you yeah. have a child that when that child is born with a pre-existing condition before Obamacare would not be able to access health care and not be able to buy insurance. And then to know that that changed. I mean, it has brought peace of mind to millions of Americans. I mean, we, so many of us take access to health care as like, you know, just like no big yeah, deal. I've right. had health care. Yeah. Great. Yeah. We don't ever imagine what life would be like without health care. Well, there are millions and millions of Americans who didn't have health care. And it's, it's a basic human right. And, you know, we you have to keep people healthy. And the idea that the Republicans are playing games with something so important in people's lives, so personal to their their well-being, the, the idea of, you know, having access to health care is really disappointing. And I think they're going to pay a price for it. I think the American people had rallied last time. I mean, the one thing that I think is exciting about the Obamacare fight is it reminds everyone, in the end, the American people have the power in this country because we have a Republican president, Republican House, Republican Senate. Yeah, they, yeah. It was on the fast track. It was getting oh, yeah. repealed. Oh, yeah, yeah, and what yeah. stopped it? It wasn't us. I mean, we worked hard. It was the American people who said, who came to Washington, who called, who wrote, who said, who went to town hall meetings who went and to said, those don't town halls. you right. dare do this. Yeah. And that's a good lesson. Yeah, right. And in terms of stories, I just want to point out that the, the, one of the most powerful we've heard uh, is the story of Jimmy Kimmel, who yeah. has a son born with a heart condition, yep. just had heart surgery. Yep. And, you know, and his, his talking about what that means to them. And somebody like him as wealthy as he is who certainly could afford it but this is this is what it's this is what it's all about yeah. a little infant like it's that like as real you say. people starting out real yeah. people and and having that protection for the for the very first time you know you never come in we without our asking you um about rhode island and how rhode island is doing on the road to legalizing marijuana uh you know it's interesting the governor uh i think recently made a statement that she does not support it in this legislative session i think there is a study commission the General Assembly also has under consideration. Because it's being considered by the legislature up, as opposed to other states which have done it through the initiative process. That's right. right. We, yeah. That's right. Yeah. It's, uh, okay. There are a number of bills to, to mm -hmm. authorize it. It has been decriminalized. We obviously have medical marijuana. Yeah. So I think we're sort of on a, on a path here. I don't know that it will happen this legislative session, but uh, in, particularly because I think the governor has made a statement that she doesn't support doing it right now. Right. Um, and in terms of do you do you have and a lot of people had given up that Republicans could uh, the Democrats rather could ever get control of the House back um, before like 2020 with reapportionment because we know some of these districts breaking news yeah We're taking <laughs> back the House in 2018 all right I don't think right. there is any doubt that uh, we will this will be the first opportunity frankly for the American people to put a check on Donald Trump in a significant way. Uh, it, when we take back the house in 2018, it will be it will allow us to stop, the, you know, the most extreme uh, conduct of this president. And the truth is, we're going to we have and will continue to have great candidates because of this incredible activism and this mm. sort of awakening by America. Uh, but in addition to that, you know, we're going to have we've been working uh, to really clarify and develop and then execute a really 
clear, simple message about what Democrats are fighting for. We didn't have a good economic mm-hmm. message in the last cycle, I think. Uh, we've spent a lot of work. I'm a co-chair of the Democratic Policy and Communications Committee, working with Sherry Bustos from Illinois and Hakeem yeah, Jeffries in New York. They're both, both terrific. Yeah. And we've done a lot of work over the last several months to craft really a long-term message for Democrats that really focuses on an economic agenda, which is fully inclusive, which really addresses the economic anxiety that Americans are feeling, uh, and you know, obviously supported by a legislative uh, package to, mm-hmm. to make those priorities clear. So we're going to have a great message. We're going to have a great uh, set of candidates. And the circumstances are that I think people really want to put a check on this president. And we only need 24 seats. We'll get many more than that. And we will finally take control of the House. Hell from, yeah. From your lips to God's I ears. Like that. Indeed. Thanks so much, Congressman. It's always great to see you. Former Secretary of the Navy Ray Mabus joins us here for the next half hour in on the uh, Bill Press show. Lots of questions about what's happening at the Pentagon and do they need that $54 billion that uh, Donald Trump wants to send them? We'll be right back. It's going to pass. So that's it. Download our podcast. Search for the Bill Press show on iTunes. And remember to rate, review and subscribe. This is the Bill Press show. Live video, Bill's commentary, the best clips from the show, all in one place. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. What do you say? It's a Wednesday, May 3rd. Uh, Good to see you today. Thank you so much for joining us. It is The Bill Press Show. We're coming to you live from our nation's capital. Washington, D.C., in our studio on Capitol Hill, reaching out to you coast to coast on several platforms on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Uh, Also on Free Speech TV. Good to see you on Free Speech TV. Joining you on WCPT out in Chicagoland, our podcast every day at uh, BillPressShow.com. And uh, lately, and just as of yesterday, I guess, on Patreon. Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash the Bill Press Show. BP Show. Patreon.com slash BP Show. Damn, one of these days I'll get it right. (laughs) Patreon.com slash BP Show. BP Show. All part of the Young Turks Network. And finally, we're brought to you today by the American Federation of Teachers, the great teachers of America, men and women in the classrooms making a difference uh, every day um, during the Lord's work under President Randy Weingarten. We salute them, thank them for their support. Uh, and we welcome to the studio a man who has a career in public service in so many, God, I'm telling you, what a resume. Uh, a former governor of Mississippi, former ambassador to Saudi Arabia, and former secretary of the Navy, the Honorable Ray Mabus. Mr. Secretary, <laughs> Governor, Mr. Ambassador, I don't know what the hell to call you. You know, Bill, just a simple excellency will do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll genuflect what I said. Hello, Ray. <laughs> That'll work better than anything. Hey, welcome to the program. Thanks so much. Uh, how are you? So what are you doing for an encore? <laughs> well, I'm doing a lot of interesting things. I'm an advisor to Google Ventures. Uh, oh, really? Yeah. I, I just finished teaching at Harvard Business School, Harvard Law School, and Harvard Kennedy School. And I'm uh, helping some uh, pre-IPO companies. Uh, how do you grow? How do you expand? Uh, trying to uh, help companies that are trying to change the world in good ways. 
Yeah, well, good. What you have been doing in many different, many different ways. I want to ask first. Let's, as a governor, how important do you think, um, with this, particularly with the Trump administration, but overall, the role of governor is in kind of, you know, maybe building a firewall against some of Donald Trump's policies. Well, you know, governors and states have been in uh, the the words of the '80s, laboratories of democracy. Mm-hmm. It's it's the best elective job in the United States because it's big enough that you can have some real impact. You can make some real changes. It's small enough, though, that you can see those uh, in action. And you're living with people that, that are affected by it. And I think that um, this is going to have to be the, the firewall, as you put it. Um, and I think, I think the Democratic Party has ignored governors and legislatures for too long. Uh, that's where most of the action happens in government, uh, not, not here in Washington, not on the Hill. You get all the concentration here in media, in what, um, what's going on day in, day out on stuff like, I mean, you, you mentioned the AFT mm-hmm. and education. The states are States and localities are where everything is happening in education. It's not here. It's not. Um, it's it's not a national thing. It is there on the ground, and you can make the biggest difference. And you can, you know, you you look at things like uh, climate policy and Trump's rolling back uh, a mm-hmm. lot of the things that you know are going to make a difference as to whether this planet survives or not, and. It's the states that are standing up. It's the states that are continuing to push forward with the the mandates for cleaner energy, for less carbon, for for a brighter future. And, you know, I was secretary of the Navy. If he keeps rolling back climate change, we're going to kill sailors and Marines. It's just that simple. How so? Well, the Navy and Marine Corps are America's first responders. They're the world's first responders. As climate change accelerates as sea levels rise as storms get um more more severe as the ice in the arctic is melting faster and faster the people that are going to be sent in are sailors and marines and if we don't take care of climate change we're going to put them at risk the other way is in combat Um, when i got there we were losing a marine killed or wounded for every 50 convoys of fuel we brought into Afghanistan. That was way too high a price to mm. pay. So we gave them rollable solar panels to put in their packs to power their radios and their GPSs. We gave them bigger solar panels to power bases and things like that. Uh, we've got SEAL teams in the field now that are net zero in terms of water and fuel. And so, you know, as one SEAL team commander said, if you turn off the generator... You can yeah. hear. Huh. You can hear if the bad guys are trying to sneak up on you. You don't have a target on your back. And so energy security, climate change, these are all national security issues. They're not abstract, but they have a direct impact on the military, on the forces of this country. And if you if you want to help the military, you're going to have to fight climate change. The last thing I'll say uh, uh, in this realm is the Navy tends to have bases on the water 
Uh, yeah. And uh, you don't it, say. Uh, right. If, <laughs> if we, there is a, a certain a, connection there. There's yeah. some connection there. If we don't slow climate change, if we don't do some of the things that we have to do, Norfolk is going to be at risk very soon. Mm-hmm. A lot of our bases are going to be at risk. And we'll, we'll either have to spend huge amounts of money protecting them, raising them, doing whatever every we single, need. Every single base will be threatened, right, if it, not inundated. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and, uh, but Norfolk is the most threatened. I, I, you know, I've heard about that for, for whatever reason, the way it's water currents or something that Norfolk is already experiencing. Well, you're, you're seeing these king tides in Florida. You're seeing mm-hmm. a lot of the – you're seeing more severe storms, and you're seeing Norfolk uh, flooding more yeah. now. But I'm talking about just really being at risk of going away, and that's the biggest base in the world. So the idea that climate change is just something that environmentalists worry about, right, or uh, – um, skiers or something like that. It's, it's, it's a lot more serious than that. It's it's way more serious than that. It's particularly serious in a military um, situation. It's particularly serious for our military um, because of the things that sailors and Marines are called on to do. Is and the because, Pentagon getting that message out that this is, a, to hear you say it, a national security issue? Well, we were uh, under <laughs> yeah. Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I've I moved the Navy off fossil fuels. Um, we're at 65% alternative energy on our bases in the United States now. Uh, wow. We're at about wow. 35% at sea, uh, going to 50% by 2020. And again, these are not things to, these aren't environmental priorities. These aren't um, things to make you feel better. Yeah. These are military necessities. I mean, you don't, when you think of Marines, the first thing you think of probably isn't ardent environmentalist. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. They, uh, as one of my Marine aides say, you know, we're Marines. We like to blow stuff up. And, <laughs> but they have been in the lead in terms of changing the way we use energy and the types of energy. And we just got way more efficient in the eight years I was there. Oil usage in the Marines went down by 60%. Oil usage in the Navy went down by 15%. Now, part of that was pulling out of Afghanistan and Iraq, mostly, Mm -hmm. but it sure wasn't all of it. They're getting much better in terms of how much we use and in the sources of energy. So when you were able to, you say this base is now 65% alternative energy. So that means a big shift to to what? To solar panels? Solar, wind, wind, geothermal, hydrothermal. Right. Mainly solar and wind, though. Yeah, in terms of powering those facilities, right? Right. Now, then you mentioned also at sea. But how can you reduce it at sea? Because the, the, I mean, those well, we're those ships are not being run by solar panels. <laughs> no, but seventeen um, percent of our fleet is nuclear, which is alternative. Mm-hmm. Um, the rest of it is biofuels. Um, not of ethanol, yeah. but second, third generation biofuels. Um, and, you know, the only, we had, we had 
the only requirements we had for biofuel was that it be a drop-in fuel. We weren't going to change any engines. We weren't going to do anything. It's why the Navy can't use natural gas, because we've already got the engines, and it would be prohibitively expensive to try to change it. Um, secondly, it, can't, it couldn't take any land out of food production. And third, mm-hmm. it had to be price competitive. And even with the price of oil as yeah. low as it got, yeah. biofuels remain competitive. And one of the things that always interested me, because I got hammered a lot in Congress for pushing alternative energy, was um, that they wanted it to be price competitive. And they said you ought to quit subsidizing um, <clears throat> alternative energy. Well, we ought to quit subsidizing oil, which we've been doing for for a yeah. hundred years. Plus, most of these folks who were getting on me claim to be free market people. Don't you want competition? Don't you want competition in liquid fuels? And the strategic reason is in Singapore. There's an oil refinery owned by the Chinese. Right down the road is a biofuel refinery owned by the Finns. <laughs> now. Personally, I don't want the Navy, the United States Navy, to be dependent on China to refuel their ships in the Western Pacific. Makes sense. Right. And no, I makes all. And I was going to ask you, so from an economic, even from an economic point of view, right, the argument is there to sh- shifting to alternative fuels. Well, on land, we're saving money by mm-hmm. going that way. And when I left, we were moving toward microgrids so we could pull ourselves off the grid if something happened, because our grid's pretty fragile, either for sabotage or just from being old. Um, and if something happened to the grid, you needed to be able to do your military your military jobs. From uh, an economic standpoint at sea, you know, biofuels, the, the last um, solicitation that got put out just said fuel. It didn't say oil, it didn't say biofuels. It just said fuel, and biofuel was able to compete. To compete, uh, yeah. yeah. With, you know, uh, uh, first of all, I have to ask you a, what I guess is a dumb question, <laughs> <laughs> but hearing you speak about the Navy and the Marines, are, are both under the aegis of the Secretary of the Navy? Yes. So yes, it's, it's the, um, I didn't realize both the that. Navy and the Marine Corps. Right, okay. But Marines do not consider themselves part of the U.S. Navy, do they? Well, Marines are pretty special folks. Right. Uh, yeah. and, uh, rightfully they, so, and consider themselves rightfully so. Rightfully right. so. Yeah. And, you know, I'm um, both the Commandant of the Marine Corps and the Chief of Naval Operations report to the Civilian Secretary of the Navy. I see. Right. You Which, know, I, and we're familiar with the Marines here because in our neighborhood, as you know, the Marine barracks is right down the street couple of blocks down the street from our studio. And yeah, and if we, you've never been to a Friday night oh, yeah. parade, uh, you've, you've missed one yeah. of the great uh, and moving things that's happened in yeah. Washington, D.C. Yeah, and we see them in the neighborhood, and they're, they're, they're great neighbors, and then right the Navy Yard right down the street. But I didn't right. realize they're both under, both report to the Secretary of the, uh, of, of the Navy. Yeah. yeah. Have for, um, since 1798. What, you know, Donald, so Don, if you hear, listen to Donald Trump and our, um, a good friend, Bill Dunlap, sent me an article yesterday that someone had sent him about what deplorable, miserable shape the United States military is today and, and 
how far it had fallen under Barack Obama and so badly that we have to pump in $54 billion. Uh, what shape is, you, you just left, so what shape did you find it? Well, let me, let me give you some numbers. That's what we want. <laughs> yeah. And these, are, these have the added advantage of being true. Um, these are <laughs> not alternative facts. <laughs> these are how, these are real numbers. How refreshing in the uh, <laughs> age as, of Donald Trump, as, as Yogi Bear used to say, you can look it up. <laughs> yeah. uh, but in 2001, the U.S. Navy had 316 ships. By 2008, after one of the great military buildups in our history, we were down to 278 ships. And in those seven years. Those seven budget years, the Navy put 41 ships under contract. Now, 41 ships wasn't enough to keep our fleet from continuing to shrink, and 41 ships wasn't enough to keep our shipyards going. Mm-hmm. I was there for seven budget years, even though I was there for almost eight years since Congress just got around to passing the 17 uh, yeah. budget. And in those seven years, so it's an absolute comparison. 01 to 08, 41 mm-hmm. ships. 09 to 16, 86 ships. Mm-hmm. I put 86 ships under contract with a 20% overall smaller top line. And so here's, here's what I, I guarantee. They're blaming Barack Obama for the decisions made under George Bush. But our fleet's going to get back to 300 ships by 2019, two years from now, and it'll be at 308, which is what we were building toward in 2021. Hmm. And I guarantee you that they'll take credit I was just for gonna, what uh, Barack yeah, Obama yes, did. Yes, yes. Oh, yeah. You know <laughs> so, damn well they will. So right. it takes a long time to build a, a Navy. It takes a long time to build ships. And the, the other thing, you know, I've got two questions about this, you know, pumping money in number one to what end if we're pulling back if we're not going to be as engaged <clears throat> to what end is this money going to be used so there was there was a story yesterday that the three times the navy has asked to do freedom of navigation exercises close to the islands that the chinese are claiming in the south china sea this administration has turned them down <clears throat> and said, no, you can't do it. Now, all sorts of people on the Hill during the campaign yelled at Barack Obama for not allowing enough of these. Now, we did them. Mm-hmm. We, we went close to these islands to establish freedom of navigation so that the status quo didn't change, so that China didn't, wasn't able to just say, there are, there are islands. Mm-hmm. No, they're not. They're, uh, they're in international waters. And we're gonna we're gonna enforce that by these freedom of navigation exercises. Evidently, this administration ain't gonna do it. So to what end? But the second is there is so much waste. And one of the things that that allowed me to build as many ships and has allowed the Obama administration to build as many ships is we drove down the cost of ships dramatically. Um, Littoral combat ships costing about half of what they were when I came in. We signed the biggest contract in Navy history in 2014 for 10 Virginia-class attack submarines. These things cost about $2 billion apiece. Mm. We bought 10 for $18 billion. Now, this is math in public. 
but yeah. we paid for nine, we got ten mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. because the way we bought it, because we did, um, we bought ten over five years instead of instead of one at a time. We're saving three hundred million dollars per destroyer. So, just throwing money at it in the doesn't help you. Number one, you know, do you need a bigger army? Do you need a bigger Marine Corps? We do need a bigger fleet. We absolutely do. And we're getting there. As I said, I'm absolutely sure that in a couple yeah. of years, this administration is going to say, Barack Obama, the Navy was terrible. No, now, no, the no. Navy's wonderful. Uh, it just doesn't, doesn't work that way. It doesn't have the added advantage of being true. Well, you know, they've, they've already done that for so many of these job sites that the pres, that, that Donald Trump has gone to, right? The, the Boeing plant where they rolled out the Dreamliner as if they had built it in the last month, where, in fact, that plant was created under Barack Obama and all that uh, production line started and continued and delivered under Barack Obama. It happened to be the first one rolling out in early 2017. It had and nothing to do with Donald Trump. No, they, they've done it with... Uh, with the Joint Strike Fighter, the F-35, where he said, mm-hmm. we're going to drive down prices. They're costing too much. The contracts are already in place. They were buying smaller numbers. The prices are coming down. They're going to come down regardless of who of who the president is. And, you know, it's, it's just interesting to watch that, um, you know, that, that these, if you want to talk about jobs, 8,500 more people working in our shipyards today than when Barack Obama took office. And these are great jobs. These are 75,000 a year average mm-hmm. jobs. They are high-skilled um, industrial manufacturing jobs. Where are the big shipyards in the country today? Bath, Maine, Groton, Connecticut, Newport News, Virginia, Mobile, Alabama, Pascagoula, Mississippi, Marionette, Wisconsin, and um, San Diego. And San Diego. Hmm. San Diego builds all our support ships, right. uh, the Oilers. The, the, Have the, we made the same economies uh, on fighter planes? No, I mean— <clears throat> Why is that? that? Well, we did, we did in— planes that the services controlled. We did with the Navy and the F-18s. The costs were coming down on, on F-18s. The Joint Strike Fighter is just a, a poster child for how not to do a weapons program. Uh, number one, it's not joint. It, the, there are three very different aircraft for the Air Force, the Marines, and the Navy. Only about 40% of the parts are common in the thing. Hmm. That's the first problem. The second problem is nobody is held responsible because you can't. I mean, I was responsible for ships. Yeah. I was responsible for things that the Marine Corps bought or the Navy bought. If it's for a bunch of different services, it's at the DOD level. And can you tell me who bought those? (laughs) (laughs) And can you tell me who should be held responsible for the I mean. That plane is so much over budget. It is so far behind schedule, and there's nobody to hold mm. accountable. Right. Yeah. Mm. Uh, I'm going to switch because we don't have too much time left, but um, your experience in Saudi Arabia, you know, um, how do you consider Saudi Arabia to do? Friend or foe? Well, <clears throat> I think, number one, 
we ought to keep engaging with Saudi Arabia. I mean, the in terms of if you look at, I mean, I don't even think of it in terms of the the effect it would have. I, I do think of it, but the effect it would have on the world's economy um, with the amount of oil that it produces. Now, we don't get much of that oil anymore. anymore right. Um, and in fact, we spend about $80 billion a year to keep the Straits of Hormuz open to get that oil from the Middle East, from Saudi Arabia, from Kuwait, from Qatar, from mm-hmm. UAE out, uh, mainly to go to China, Japan, um, yeah. India, yeah. to go to Asia. But um, the other thing is that the biggest human migration every year is the Hajj. Three million yeah. people from around the world come to right. Saudi Arabia on the pilgrimage. Now, if there was a government there that was recruiting for terror, that was preaching an anti-Western, anti-U.S. message over and over again to those three million people who were then going back into the world, I think our lives get way more complicated than they are mm-hmm. right now. Now, the Saudis need to need to open up. They need to quit treating women uh, they waste half their society because of the way they yeah. treat women. Um, <clears throat> they need to, and they're beginning to take some steps. The the deputy crown prince has uh, some pretty ambitious programs. Modernization. Yeah, modernization, get the, getting them off of oil. And I'll, I'll circle back around to the environment. The Saudis are one of the ch- lead investors, one of the biggest investors in alternative energy. Hmm. That well, ought to tell you something. Yeah, didn't know that. Yeah, wow. I should tell them something, man. I got to tell you, just fascinating. We learned a lot. I mean, I'm sorry we're, we're, we've reached the end of our time here because uh, with all the roles that you've played and all that you've learned, um, we learned a lot this morning. Uh, oh. Mr. Ambassador, um, <laughs> Governor, <laughs> and uh, Mr. Secretary. Your Excellency. Thank <laughs> and, you for joining us. Uh, all right. And Your Excellency. <laughs> Yeah, good luck at whatever you're doing now. Will you come back and see us again? Absolutely. Ray Mavis is the name, and uh, it's Bill Press and the Bill Press Show. Hey, thanks for joining us today, folks. It's been really good having you with us. Have a great Wednesday, and uh, come on back again tomorrow. This is the Bill Press Show.